Testing, there we go. Good morning. Good to see everybody today. If I seem to be moving a little slower and stiffer, you're right. Uh, it's kind of as a celebration at the end of the school year, Carol and I took the kids to Six Flags Thursday and Friday. I haven't been to Six Flags in years. I'm telling you, apparently the older you get, the harder those rides become. There were things that I had no problem with riding years ago, and I thought I was going to throw up on Thursday. Texas Giant did a number on my neck that I'm still feeling. My fingers and knuckles are so sore. I think it has something to do with the imprint that I left on the seat in front of me as we were going down that first hill. But it was fun. It was worth every minute of it, I promise you. (laughs) As we continue looking at these truths from Scripture that I read through on Easter Sunday, today we're going to be in the first chapter of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open Ephesians chapter 1. We're actually going to be in Ephesians 1 for the next few Sundays because this is part of that reading that I did on Easter where I just went right down through this text here because Ephesians 1 is just full of one incredible truth after another. The first half of Ephesians 1 contains some of the deepest, most profound, awe-inspiring doctrine as you will find anywhere else in the Bible. Ephesians 1 is what I call the gospel marinade. Because if you've done any grilling, you know that there's a big difference between seasoning a piece of meat right before you put it on the grill versus letting that meat soak in a marinade for a few hours before you cook it. Because marinating something doesn't just uh, flavor the surface. It, It changes the flavor of the meat throughout the whole thing. And so you can't just use Ephesians 1 as a, some kind of quick spiritual seasoning. There are things in here that are going to force us to just sit and marinate in for a while. In other words, you can't just skim through Ephesians 1 real quick and go on to the next thing because there are things that just make you stop and go, whoa, wait a minute, what did that say? Go, does that really mean what that seems to mean right there and just causes us to kind of chew on and and just let sink in for a while. Before we look at it, I want to tell you that this is one of the main texts that God used during a time in my life where he uh, began revealing things to me that I, I struggled with pretty hard at first, but it ended up being a defining moment that completely changed everything for me, including the way that I view him the way that I view my salvation, and the way that I minister to others. And this came well into my salvation, well into my walk with the Lord, because I surrendered my life to Him. I was saved in 1994, became a youth pastor in 2000, and then somewhere around the time of 2007, 8, 9, somewhere in there, the Lord took me on this journey of discovery that lasted two or three good years, and it was a a discovery of His grace that radically changed things, but it didn't come without some difficulty because there were things in there that went completely against things that I had believed before, things that I had been taught, and things that I had 
been teaching others, been teaching the youth and things that I just naturally assumed about my relationship with God. But the thing is, when you wrestle with God, he always ends up winning. That is not a fair fight. And I'm glad that he won the wrestling match that I was having with him because I haven't been the same since. And my prayer is that you, some of you in here might have that same kind of uh, experience with him as we begin walking through some of these truths here. Today we're just going to be focusing on verses 3 through 6, so let's all stand together and read what these amazing truths say here. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, Paul's writing and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Let's pray. God, I just pray that right now that you would just blow us away with the immensity of your grace and your mercy. Lord, that by your spirit you would open our eyes to see you in ways that maybe some of us haven't before. Uh, that you would remind some of us of some of these truths that we need to be reminded of. God, I, I just ask that we would just be able to leave this place this morning just in awe of all you are. And all that you do, all that you have done and continue to do and who you have made us in you, God, is... It's too big for us to grasp with our puny minds. So I'm asking you to just grant us the grace and the power to be able to just get just a piece of it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> there is so much good stuff just in these three verses alone. So much that I had a hard time deciding just which direction I was going to go with this. I mean, there's so, so many things that I could talk about. And then I thought, why not just talk about all of them? And so that's what I'm going to try to do. Although we're going to focus uh, more on some things than we will on others. But Paul starts this out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means praise Him. Bless His name. He's saying that we should bless and praise God. Now, he could have just left it at that. He didn't have to say anything more because, yes, we should praise God and bless his name, and we don't need any reason for it other than the fact that he is God and he deserves it. He is the creator. We are the creature, and we were created for that purpose to to bless his name, to give praise and glory and honor to his name. And if God never did anything for you other than just allowing you to breathe his air, then you should bless him for eternity simply because he is God and you are not. But God doesn't want just that. He desires more than just rote, mechanical, begrudging praise. And this is just one of the the huge things that makes him different, that sets the, the, the one true God apart 
from any other God of any other religion. Yes, he wants to be praised and worshipped, but he wants that worship to, to spring up from a heart full of joy that only comes from a, a, a loving, interactive relationship with him. He desires worship that comes from an attitude of want to rather than just have to. I mean, we see this several places in the scripture. This is why he said to the people in the first chapter of Isaiah, he says, your multiplied sacrifices are nothing to me. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat cows. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. All your festivals and feasts are a burden to me. I am weary of them. Now, this is a very interesting thing for God to say here because he's telling them that he hates the very thing that he commanded them to do. Uh, This wasn't their idea. They're not the ones that came up with animal sacrifices and annual observances as a way to, to worship and pay honor to God. God is the one who came up with this. Right off the bat in Isaiah, he tells them that he hates these things. And why is that? Well, he comes back around to this later, 28 chapters later, and then he says this in verse 13. He says, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. What they were doing was all because they had to rather than because they wanted to. Yes, it was worship. Yes, it was what God commanded. But it wasn't the kind of worship that just naturally springs up from a heart full of joy. We see this same idea in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is talking about giving as an act of worship. And in verse 7, he says this, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He wants giving to be done as a want to, born from a heart of joy. This is why I always say that everything that God does in your life and everything that he allows is to ultimately lead you into pure joy. And the reason why he is all in on your joy is because it will produce in us the very thing that he desires most, which is a want to of worship to bless his name. Now notice that I did not say that everything he does is to lead you into pure happiness. As a matter of fact, he may actually lead you into things that don't make you happy at all. But he knows will eventually lead you to joy. Big difference between the two. Happiness is shallow and temporary and always conditional situation. It rises and falls based on whatever situation you find yourself in. But joy that God leads us to is deep-rooted and constant no matter what your situation is. And so Paul doesn't just leave verse 3 with 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us then a reason to want to bless him and praise his name. And so Paul is about to lead us into pure joy with what he says next. And from here all the way through verse 14 is why we should want to bless God. And the first thing that he says is because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What exactly does that mean? There are a couple things here. They're both going to be up on the screen because some of you just need to write these two things down and put them on your bedroom mirror or in the bathroom or somewhere where you can see this every day and just be reminded of these things. But for one, it means that for those who are in Christ, anything that God could bless us with, he has blessed us with. Anything that God could bless us with, he has blessed us with. There is no blessing that exists that doesn't already belong to those of us who are in Christ. If there were any more that we don't have, then Paul would not have said every blessing. Every means all. There are no leftovers. There are no left. You have them all. The other thing that it means is that God has blessed us with everything that can only come from him. That's what Paul means when he says these blessings in the heavenly places. You see, all things we know ultimately come from God. All good things come from God is what the Bible says. But there are some things that we could be very prone to taking credit for ourselves. For instance, if you were to say, I was blessed with a job promotion, yes, ultimately that came from God, but we could be, uh, it'd be very easy for us to say, and because I put in a lot of work in order to earn that job promotion. You could say, I was blessed with a lot of money. Yes, it was from God, but, I mean, I did a lot to earn that money. I worked really hard, and, and that's why I have all that money. So you can see there are a lot of good things in this world that we might label as blessings, but they leave room in there for us to take some credit for them as well. But then there are some things that no one can take credit for but God. These are the things that can only come from Him, things that are not found in this world. Things like You being declared holy and righteous before him, even though you know that there are times where you don't always act that way. Having forgiveness from God when you know that you don't deserve it. Being adopted by him, made a son or a daughter of the father. That's not something that you can earn or achieve on your own. That has to come from him and him only. In Christ, you have been blessed with an inexhaustible resource of grace after grace after grace that will never run out. And it's a grace that you will not be able to find in this world apart from Christ. That only comes from heavenly places. You also have the ability to do great and glorious, spectacular, and miraculous things for the kingdom of God. You have that ability right now if the Spirit of God lives in you like we talked about last week. Any spiritual blessing you can think of. I mean, I could go on and on all days about the thing that, that things that can only come from God that we have in Christ. You have those things if you belong to Jesus. 
And I tell people all the time that if we really knew what all that we have in Christ, if we really knew what all we had in our prayer times, we'd spend a whole lot more time thanking than asking God for stuff. There's nothing wrong with asking God for things. I mean, that's part of the prayer that Jesus teaches us how to pray. But I think a lot of times that Christians spend time asking God for things that we already have. Spend a lot of prayers asking God to bless us when the truth is he has blessed us with more than we can ever hope or imagine in Jesus. I think the problem, though, is we are looking at temporary, material, worldly things and label those the blessings. Those are the blessings I want and not realizing the eternal incredible, miraculous blessings that you do have in Christ already. You know, there's a popular saying among Christians that I really have a hard time with that describe being a Christian as just one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread. I'm telling you, if you think that you're a beggar, then you do not know what you have in Christ. And how can I call myself a beggar if I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing? believe it greatly diminishes what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross when we start calling ourselves beggars. We were beggars, but Jesus has made us sons. Not just sons, but Romans 8.16 says that the Spirit testifies that we are children of God. And if children, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. No one would ever refer to a child of an earthly king, an heir of an earthly king as a beggar. Nobody would ever refer to the children of Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg as beggars, would they? How much more so children of the king of all kings, heirs of a father who owns everything. Now, I get it. I know that that saying is really there to to keep humility in mind and to make us feel humble. But I'm telling you, there are incredible truths about God's grace that make you plenty humble by themselves without us having to call ourselves something that we're not. And you're fixing to see what some of those are. Now then, the next verse just blows me away, and I hope it will you too. Verse 4 says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. I want to focus in just on the first two words of that verse for a minute, the just as. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What does Paul mean by that? Well, the word that Paul used there in the Greek that we translate to just as is the word kathos. And there are many places in the New Testament where that word is used. And I want to read just a few of them to you so you'll get an idea of what that word means. In Matthew 28, the women go to Jesus' tomb. And they encounter an angel of the Lord there, and the angel tells them in verse 6, He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. He is risen, kathos, he said. The guarantee that Jesus wasn't there was based on the fact that he already said that he was going to rise from the dead. 
In Mark 14, 21, Jesus said, The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. The Son of Man is to go, kathos, it was written of him. He was talking about going to the cross, and his going to the cross was assured because God's word said it was going to happen. And because God's word said it, there was no way that it couldn't happen. Kathos, that's what that means. It doesn't just mean this is true because of this. It means it's greater than just because. It's this is true. This is guaranteed because of whatever comes after the kathos. One more. In John thirteen thirty four, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Even if I have loved you, that you also love one another. What he wasn't saying is, you better love one another. Which is how we sometimes take that as a threat. But he was saying, you can, you will love one another. Why? Because kathos is there. Kathos, I have loved you. It is assured that you can, assured that will, you will love one another. Kathos, because I have loved you. Remember, an orphan will always read a promise as a command, and a son will always read a command as a promise. So now you get the idea of what the word kathos means. So back to Ephesians 1. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, kathos. You have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. All of those spiritual blessings in Christ are so guaranteed. You can be so assured of them because God chose you a long time ago to be the recipient of those blessings. And when he chooses to do something, it never fails to come about. So now let's talk about that part, God choosing you. I've said before, you've heard me say it, that the reason why you are saved is not because you prayed a prayer or because you walked down an aisle of a church or because you were baptized or because you decided in your mind that Jesus was the only way. Based on God's word, not just here, but many, many places throughout the scriptures, you are saved only because God decided long before you were born that you would be saved. Now, I'll just tell you, some try to explain this as saying something other than what it actually says here. And one of the more popular explanations is that it means that God looked way into the future and saw that one day you were going to make the decision to believe in, in him. But that's simply not what this says at all. I mean, that's, a, that's an entirely different verb. God choosing you versus God saw way down into the future are two entirely different things. And if that's what Paul meant, he would have said, before the foundation of the world, God saw into the future that you would be saved one day. But he doesn't say that. He says that God chose you way back then. And there's a specific thing that he says he chose you for, that you would be holy and blameless before him. And then in verse 5, Paul doubles down on this, saying, in love, he predestined us to adoption. Predestined means he determined beforehand, not he looked 
into the future. And then he says, according to the kind intention of his will, it was his will, not ours, to the praise of his glorious grace. And that last line there tells us why God did it this way, so that we wouldn't be able to take any credit whatsoever for any part of our salvation. All the praise, all the credit, all the glory can only go to him. See, he chose you long before you ever had a chance to prove that you deserve to be chosen. Long before you ever had a chance to do anything good or bad. All those blessings I talked about earlier that can only come from God, those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, salvation is included in that also because it only comes from him. Some might say, well, I was saved because I had the faith to believe. You better believe it. That's true. You did. But even that faith was given to you by God. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. What not of yourselves? That faith. It is the gift of God. That faith to believe was God's gift to you so that you would become the very thing that he decided that you would be a long time ago. I'm telling you, to realize that about your salvation and to believe it just enlarges and magnifies God's grace a hundredfold. Just as verse 5 says, he did it to the praise of his glorious grace. This is the part that I was talking about earlier that I really, really struggled with for a while. When the Lord began revealing this to me, I, I fought it pretty hard at first. I told you more about this when we went through Romans 9. And if some of this has sounded odd to you, I encourage you to go read Romans chapter 9. This went completely against everything that I had believed and I've been taught before. But the more I studied the scriptures, I'm telling you, the more I just kept running into it over and over again. And finally, I came to the place where I said, God, I can't make sense of this with my rational brain. I cannot wrap my mind around this, but I have to admit that I can't escape it either. If your word says this is how it is, then this is how it is. And even though I don't fully understand it, I'm going to trust it simply because your word says it. I can't deny that. Another thing going through my mind was if this is true, then this raises more questions than it answers. Some pretty serious questions about God. And I didn't have the answers to those questions, but I told God that I was going to believe it and that I would just trust him to fill in the blanks along the way. And he has. And I'm telling you, it has changed everything for me. What it probably changed more than anything as far as my relationship with him is just how much he has increased and I have decreased. What I mean by that is just my love for him has just grown more than I ever thought was possible to grow while at the same time just humbling me more and more. And it's given me a sense of security and comfort I've never had before. 
We were talking about this a little bit at the table that I was sitting at in our Wednesday night class, how those who tend to struggle with the sovereignty of God and the grace of God the most um, generally are two types of people. These aren't the only people that struggle with it, but generally you'll see that these two types struggling with it, and that's those with high type A personalities and control freaks. Because high type A's are the driven overachievers who like to have checklists and progress reports and things that they can feel good about accomplishing. But understanding how your salvation happened just throws all that away. Just eliminates all that. Control freaks obviously like to be in control, even when it comes to their own salvation. And this presents that happening as, well, I know all this because I was both. I was a high type A control freak. That's probably had a lot to do with all the roommates that I went through that I talked about last week. And a lot to do with the struggles that Carol and I had in our marriage for a long time. But I'm telling you, understanding this right here about God changed a whole lot of that in me. Yeah, I still have some of those issues, but I'm telling you right now, I'm not near as bad as I used to be. And that change happened because of the way that God revealed himself to me in this right here. See, being able to accept the fact that God is in control takes a lot of weight and anxiety off of you from feeling like you've got to be the one in control all the time. Knowing what all Jesus has accomplished for you keeps you from feeling the need to accomplish everything and be first and tops and best in everything just for you to feel some sense of self-worth in this world. I believe this is what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said in verse 9 of chapter 4 that there is now a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. He's talking about resting in what God has done, resting in what Jesus has accomplished, resting in the fact that it is finished. It's been done for you. There's nothing left for you to do. Tanya, I believe there's some of you type A's and control freaks in here today. You just need a rest. Just quit striving and stressing. Just rest in the sovereignty of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ. But I would say there's, there's another type of person that struggles with God's grace, probably more than both of those. And that's the person that really focuses on other people's outward behavior more than anything else and thinks that if you could just change your behavior, then you've got it. You've got everything under control, and God will like you more. See, in order to get people to behave the way that you want them to, you really need some guilt and some fear in play there. Because I'm telling you, guilt and fear are great motivators to get people to change how they act. It's effective, but that change is only going to last for a very short while. It won't be lasting at all, and you can change the behavior on the outside while the heart is rotting on the inside. But see, grace removes guilt and fear, and it brings about a behavior change, but it's a change that happens from the inside out. 
And it's a change in behavior that comes from a want to instead of a have to because I don't want to feel guilty or I don't want to be afraid anymore. And so what Paul is saying with that word kathos is that you can be assured that you have all the spiritual blessings of heaven. You have every blessing that can come from God and the blessings that can only come from God. Why? Because God chose a long time ago that you would. And if there's nothing that we can take credit for in any of that, then what's left for us? What's left? I'll tell you what's left. Praise, worship, honor, thank yous a thousand times over. When you are staggered by the incredible grace and majesty of God in this way, all you're left to say is thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't deserve it. I didn't have a chance to prove it. You just did it for no other reason than because you're a God and you can do whatever you want to do. Thank you. Thank you. Tell you, knowing how much God has blessed us should make us just want to bless him in return. Let's pray. God, your love is amazing. Lord, I can see now why Paul would pray that we would be granted power to be able to grasp how high and deep and wide is the love of God because we can't grasp it on our own. We need supernatural power from you to be able to do that. God, I pray for those in here, those who have been striving and stressing, trying to please you and earn your favor and to avoid your wrath or punishment in any way. God, those who have been approaching their relationship with you out of guilt and fear, Lord, would you just wash all that away and set them free from that right now, the truth of your grace. Lord, I pray that we would all begin to see just what all that we do have in Jesus. God, because I confess right now that we spend too much time complaining about what we don't have rather than just thanking you and praising you for what we do. Lord, I pray for those that may be doubting this right now or going, well, I sure don't feel like I have every spiritual blessing. Lord, would you let them realize that it's not about how they feel, it's about what you say. That we believe because your word says it. We stand on that truth and that trust in you. Lord, I pray for those that may be here today that, that don't know you. have been living their whole life for them rather than you. They've not fully just surrendered and 
and put their trust in Jesus as the only way for them to be made right because they think that they are right. They think that they've got it all made, but God, that they would realize that before they ever were born, or they may be one of the ones that you chose for such a time as this. God, I pray that you would, by your grace, give them the faith to believe. Let them become a part of your family, that they would one day be able to stand before you holy and blameless. Holy Spirit, I'm not asking you to just come and have your way. Do in us what only you can do. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would live like we've been chosen. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.